Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. On the 4th of July, 1596, somewhere outside Iskenderun, Fiennes Morrison lost his 27-year-old younger brother, Henry. The brothers had travelled to Jerusalem, risking their lives by attempting to cross the desert while weak with illness. The devastation of Henry's death rendered Fiennes desperately sick himself. But he recovered, and 20 years later, he sat down to write an account of his grief his travels and his travails, which he called his itinerary. Today's podcast explores the world of early modern travellers, their encounters with foreign worlds and peoples, and what their experience of travel made them learn about themselves. For when they wrote about it, we get to learn about their worlds and feelings too. My seasoned guide is Dr. Eva Johanna Holmberg, Hannah holds an Academy Research Fellowship at Helsinki University and has spent her career working on travel writing and cultural encounters. Her first book was Jews in the Early Modern Imagination, and she edited a recent issue of the journal Renaissance Studies all about the Renaissance and early modern travel. She's currently writing British Encounters with Ottoman Minorities in the Early 17th Century, and she tweets as at Eva Johanna H. Hannah, thank you for joining me today. Your work is fascinating in its focus on travel writing and on cultural encounters. And you've especially worked recently on tales of people traveling to the Ottoman Empire in the 16th and 17th centuries and what we can learn about their lives and experiences. And today we're going to focus on one in particular, Fiennes Morrison. Tell us about him and his story. Well, Fiennes Morrison is probably not the most well-known of early modern English travellers. Like we first think of someone like Francis Drake or the great travel writing collections like Richard Hakluyt's Principal Navigations and all the usual suspects that come to mind when you think of travel and exploration and things like that. Morrison was more of a scholar, perhaps, than a hero. He was born in 1565, a third son of a gentleman an MP of Lincolnshire. His background was quite academic. So actually, for an academic, it's quite easily relatable as a traveller who first travels with books and then continues to produce a massive book about it. 
So he could be also seen as one of the first travellers who made a career out of writing about travel afterwards. And where does he go? So Morrison starts off studying in Cambridge in Peterhouse. And as was common at the time, you couldn't just go off to travels by yourself if you wanted. You had to apply for permission. So you applied for a passport and license to travel from the Privy Council, which he did first in 1591 after which he travelled in European countries for roughly four years. So that was his grounding in travel. Then he set off later on to a second, more interesting and more, in many ways, disastrous travel to Jerusalem and Istanbul, together with his brother Henry. So he spent largely the 1590s, almost 10 years in travel. We don't know that many details of how he actually funded these travels, There's snippets of information about getting a small stipend or maybe providing a service to his nation, which could have been anything from gathering intelligence to getting a small pots of money here and there from people who supported him. The second travels he mentions in his book that he used his patrimony towards. So there we know a bit, but it's all a bit not that clear who he's traveling for, what is his purpose. It does interest me that you say it could be that he's gathering intelligence because that sounds very plausible. We know that someone like Sir Francis Walsingham has this great network of spies and intelligences across Europe and William Cecil, Lord Burley, does as well, who are sending information back. And it makes sense that perhaps that's the case because we don't have information about where the money comes from. And he's also a bit cagey about it. When he writes finally, almost 20 years after he publishes his grand opus, there you can see between the lines that there might have been other influences for his travelling rather than the curiosity he very much stresses as the founding force or main motivation for writing. But yes, I think it's very plausible that he could have subsidised his moderate stipend by sending letters to, say, the Archbishop of Canterbury or someone else in court. And something terrible happens to him on that second long voyage where he's heading towards the Ottoman Empire. Tell us about that. Well, the second fatal journey, as he later calls it, Morrison mentions finding out about his younger brother Henry wanting to go to travels. And he mentions that even if he'd seen Europe, he still had this unquenching desire to see Jerusalem and the famous city of Istanbul, or Constantinople, as he calls it. And he also mentions quite interestingly that the brother Henry has done a travel wager of £400 to go to Jerusalem and return back alive. So he would be paid if he returned alive, which was a way to fund these travels because it was quite a (laughs) low life expectancy to return from those dangerous shores in Asia. I suppose it gives us some sense of the risk, doesn't it? It didn't occur to me when I went off my gap year that I should put a wager on coming back alive, but there we have it. Well, maybe your parents took you life insurance policy or something, (laughs) I don't know, or were you covered by them? This was probably a slightly similar thing. I mean, they weren't poor, so they came from relatively affluent backgrounds. So this was probably just to boost the travel budget. But already this travel wager and some other mentions in Morrison's book 
give us a sense that something ominous is about to happen to them. And throughout the book, I mean, it's a massive folio, he gives you premonitions and foreshadows what is to happen to the two brothers. And everything starts off quite well. Normally, travellers would cross the English Channel, proceed through, say, Netherlands and Germany, cross the Alps. Quite often, you would go to Venice. And from there, they said that they hoped to take a boat to Joppa, which was often the most common port when you wanted to travel to Jerusalem. So everything is fine until they reach Joppa and Henry falls on his face and starts to bleed from his nose. Everyone reads that as an ominous sign. And Morrison says that especially shortly afterwards when he dies, they were all seeing this as an ominous sign of his death not too long after. The two brothers go to Jerusalem, they visit the holy sites, they stay at the Franciscan monastery, and both of them, even despite their very, very good efforts to keep fit and healthy, fall ill during this time period. I mean, there are lots of contemporary theories about travel and about health, aren't there? So what steps are they taking to try and preserve their health? Morrison is actually quite methodical because his book is intended not just as a travel narrative. In fact, it's been argued that it's more like a scholarly treatise on how to travel well or how to travel correctly. I mean, it's a hefty term. You wouldn't be able to carry it with you like a pocket guidebook. So you would study it first very carefully for instructions. And in here, Morrison writes quite didactically about everything they did to preserve their health. They took precautions to get good mattresses for the journey in the ship because the ship captain recommended this. They paid extra to be able to dine at his table to get a good diet. And they also bought all kinds of home remedies and tinctures to help them adjust and climatize to the hot air, which was to be expected in Jerusalem and the Holy Land. Because at this time, people thought that your body and its humoral pathology would adjust to the country you were living in. And potentially, if you moved or set out abroad, you would put your body in danger because a very delicate humoral balance might then get off balance, basically. So they did all kinds of things to be able to keep their minds and bodies in good shape during this journey. That's really interesting that travel in itself was inherently dangerous in a humoral understanding. The, the air in a different place could be dangerous and fatal to you is something that you'd thought might have put people off. <laughs> people always come up with good reasons and remedies to help them adjust. It was recommended that a traveller shouldn't be too young in order not to be too gullible in terms of religious beliefs or easily converted. So you had to be a bit older, already set in your religious ways, but not too old either, so that your humoral body wouldn't be too set in its way, so you would be more easily adjusted to new diet, for example. And even today, if you are planning a long trip, you tend to take all kinds of vaccines. If you're going to a faraway place, you might take lactic acid, to adjust to the diet that's to come if you travel to India. 
So in a way, there are similar thought patterns still in place. So we might not immediately drink water from a strange well. And this kind of cautiousness was also visible during the Renaissance. Morrison gives, for example, all kinds of remedies, but he also gives practical, implicit advice on what the two brothers did. He mentions that they bought prunes and apricots, but that they carefully dried them before eating because foreign fruits were thought to be really, really dangerous to you, especially when they were ripe. So it was important to take precaution and adjust. But why were they thought to be dangerous? It's just various things could be wrong with them. They could have gone bad. They could be too cold or too hot. It all depended on your own humoral balance, which was quite often a product of many things, your age, your gender, the climate you were coming from. So anything could potentially go wrong with an early modern diet. But despite all of these steps that they've taken, these very wise measures of drying their apricots and getting good mattresses, things don't go according to plan. No. Both brothers already fell ill slightly of what is some form of intestinal stomach problem when they were visiting holy sites in Bethlehem. But then things go rapidly wrong when they leave Jerusalem and start travelling towards Aleppo in Syria. Henry falls ill of what we think is dysentery, but what Morrison refers to as a flux, which was in the time it could be a number of things, but most often violent diarrhea, fever, weakness. So he mentions this and then blames himself for not taking good enough care of his brother. So it was miserably hot. They were traveling at the wrong time. He mentions that Henry is tied at the back of the camel with his head is hanging below his feet, which is especially bad for his constitution and well-being. And he loses his consciousness, which prevents him from telling to Fines that he is in really bad way. When Fines finally realizes that this is it, his brother is about to die, it's too late to do anything for him. And they are in the desert in the middle of nowhere. He can't do anything. So it's a very moving paragraph in the itinerary where he almost writes an epitaph for his brother, mentioning that they embraced and said prayers and said goodbyes to each other. So even in the middle of nowhere, they were in a way able to have as good as possible death and they were able to say goodbyes to each other. But what happens then is quite dramatic. Henry dies and finds Morrison claims that no one gives them comfort, the caravan is eager to continue its journey and he also claims that the Turks laughed at them in their final embrace which is an interesting paragraph because we don't know if he's truthful if it was a misunderstanding or if he's so ravaged by grief that he can't really see sense I mean it's a devastating thing to happen in the middle of nowhere as far as he's concerned very very far from home in a desert traveling with strangers and his brothers got this ill and then died on this route you know it is an awful awful thing to happen and I suppose what's particularly unusual about it from the point of view of a historian is that he then writes at length about it and he gives us this way into his emotions which is really quite rare for this period so does he give us a sort of an insight into how people understood grief it's interesting because, in a way, Fines Morrison's reaction is 
almost textbook according to early modern ideas about grief. Obviously, they were many and multiple and often gendered. Women were thought to be more easily ravaged by it or taken over because their bodies were thought to be more permeable. And men were expected to be more intellectual about it, more diagnostic about it. But ultimately, even London bills of mortality list people who were thought to have died of grief. So it was quite common to think that grief could kill you. Partly, this was also explained by bodily functions. So grief was considered something that would go all the way to your heart and break it, like very concretely break it in bits, dry your body and make you weak. Grief was also slightly different from sorrow, which was thought to have a more gentle, even though uh, equally disastrous, effect on your body. Grief struck you, so it was often the words used for grief were something striking down unexpectedly. So especially if you weren't prepared for grief, it could really destroy both your body and mind. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we have obviously a very, very different understanding of the body and of medicine these days. But to draw on a personal anecdote, my very dearly beloved uncle and aunt have died over this last year, in both cases from cancer. But my aunt died within months of my uncle dying and it had come out of the blue. And I was really struck by the fact that an early modern looking at this would have said that she had died of grief, that her heart was broken. And I wondered these days, I guess, whether there is still something in it. Well, when I was going through recent research on the subject, both early modern and current, there are interesting parallels. The studies don't necessarily show that there's a direct line from grief to death, but that there are some mortalities that increase when your loved one dies. So it's not too far-fetched, I think, to make that connection. And quite often, as a historian, you find phenomena or elements that seem still quite current or at least parallel to experiences that we can find already in the early modern period and even earlier, because we still use the same cultural resources, scripts and literatures to make sense of our world. So there are often quite strong continuities that you then find, even if we don't believe in humoral pathology necessarily. And Morrison talks about the effect that this has on his body, grief. He doesn't just kind of perceive it to be something intellectual and of the emotions. It's something very much rooted in physicality. Yes, he mentions after the death of his brother that he's lying in bed for months and months in the Holy Land, in Iskandrun, I think, being taken care of by a man who cools his body with a fan. So he's trying to get better, but it doesn't work. And he then makes the connection that maybe it's this hot climate that prevents him from regaining his strength. So he then thinks, okay, I will try the sea air, which is actually against the current knowledge of the time. Sea travel was actually considered very dangerous for your body as well, because it tosses you around and you have to adjust to the movements of the waves. You might not have as good a diet in a ship. But he does all kinds of preparations. And ultimately, he mentions that he buys loads of good foods and fruits, solid remedies, employs a cook to cook for him. But all this is in vain because the cook falls ill. 
everyone else gets to eat the good nourishing food and what he's actually able to eat himself is just pieces of dried and salted meat so in a way a beef jerky <laughs> is what he's able to ignore and which restores him to health although he also then makes a connection with his later body, refers to his current health at the time of writing. He's 50. This diet and this illness completely changed his bodily constitution and made him fat in the future. He never regained his good health of his younger self again. And he also mentions that the death of his brother is the start of his old age, which is quite a common trope to mention that something ages you. Grief, you know, has a physical effect. Okay, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell the Ancients podcast. What is the Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names. It's one of those great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction. We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to the Ancients from History Hit wherever you get your podcast from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on the Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is After Dark Myths, Misdeeds, and the Paranormal. The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest, and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling. And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday and we'll take a look at the darker side of history from haunted pubs to Houdini to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts. Follow After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. interesting also in the context of an old-fashioned but quite persistent idea that early modern people were somehow inured to loss that they could deal with say the death of their children because they didn't feel we're told the same sort of grief at death that a loved one might do but Morrison's account completely upends that doesn't it yeah I think it's been in recent years completely debunked these theories that early modern people didn't feel loss in the same way as we do Quite often, grief like this takes away the ability to record your feelings. We might not have a written account of it, or we might have someone else's description of someone else's grief. So it's a bit further away, but there's plenty of current research that has explored 
early modern people's dark side, if you wish, their grief, their anger, and shown them as much more multifaceted people and much more varied emotions than we used to think they were capable of. I suppose the complication comes from the fact that we're looking for his inner life, but we're reading an account that he's written retrospectively 20 years later. How does that change things for you as a reader? Well, I think that's actually one of the most interesting aspects of Fiennes Morrison's massive itinerary. It was published in 1617, so almost 20 years after the travels it describes. So it's both a work of memory and of scholarship and further reading, not just an account of experience. So it comes with many layers, and I think that entanglement with your lived experience, which gives the account its credibility, travellers at this time, in order to write about travel, they need to travel themselves. They can't anymore claim authority without doing it themselves. And the dangerousness of travel also adds to this credibility. You're writing about something that you saw with your own eyes, your experience with your own body, you're really felt through your skin. It's one of the elements that make itinerary into such a fascinating account. But it also allows Morrison to then teach lessons to any future travellers. His experiences are a bit outdated if you consider that someone in the 17th century is about to go on travels. Morrison gives advice on how much horses cost in, <laughs> in certain towns, what distances are, how much money you need in order to travel from place to place. So there might have been changes. But because the book is constructed more like a treatise on how to travel, and it's not meant to be read from first page to the end, but you dip in, you search for the information that you need, a bit like an encyclopedia, it becomes much more useful. And there he can also then insert his own bitter experiences, like the grief felt after his brother's death, into the final part of the book, where he gives very concrete advice to travellers on how to choose travel companions. He can say it's not good to travel with your loved ones because you are both putting yourself in extra danger, or if you happen to lose them, you will suffer and put yourself in more danger. So you can see him picking up examples from his own experiences. It took him almost 10 years to write this book because he first composed it in Latin because he was aiming for a more scholarly European audience at first. And then he translated the book and it comes to us in a very sort of altered form, what he initially intended. It's a work of a long writing process which started as notes taken during the journey, probably in cipher, because he actually gives instructions to future travellers on how to write. You ought to take notes every day, especially when you arrive in the evening. In order to avoid trouble and danger, you ought to write in a different language or cipher, especially if you're writing about delicate political affairs, then you're supposed to send your notes off back to England. He must have been a spy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he must have been. There are all kinds of indications around that. So it should be consolation to any academic writer who takes a bit longer with, say, their second book or first book, that it took finds Morrison 20 years and several editing processes to finally reach print. 
and it was fine. It was his magnum opus. He worked on it for most of his life. Is it fair to say there's something of a vogue for travel writing at this time? Definitely, because in a way, there was a time when we had to reconfigure a bit what it meant to travel. For example, Englishmen like Morrison weren't allowed unless they were Catholic and wanted to. They weren't supposed to go on pilgrimage. The travel passport system was supposed to prevent wavering youths to go to Rome and Jerusalem to do that. So if you couldn't travel for religious purpose, what was the purpose supposed to be? And at this time, there were also very critical voices around who said that all this travel is nonsense and you're only going to corrupt yourself with foreign manners and languages and fashions. You come back like a fop dressed in Italian clothing and perfumed gloves, etc. So there was quite a strong polemic around travel as well. So Fines Morrison is definitely trying to make a case for travel for educational and knowledge gaining purposes in his book. He's defending it fiercely and trying to show that it's very worthy and noble exercise that anyone who could should do. And even if you couldn't, you could then read his book about it. And he's very much crafting a narrative about those events. But does he tell us much about the people that he's encountering? I mean, you mentioned that we have this moment of him talking about the Turks laughing after his brother died or during that moment. What else does he have to say about the people he's with or is he too grieved to notice? Well, like many travel authors at the time, he tends to report on people he encounters. Quite often, if they are foreigners, he doesn't necessarily identify these people with names or mention who he's actually speaking with. If he mentions meeting Englishmen abroad, then he mentions names quite often, because this is a humanist rhetorical trope of showing gratefulness for hospitality. So he's making these gestures, a bit like we would acknowledge help we've received from other scholars in footnotes. So in a way, he shows where he's been like this as well. I stayed in the house of Ambassador so-and-so or Levant Company Merchant so-and-so helped me. But a large part of the peoples of early modern Ottoman Empire are represented as mass of people, not very individualized, like those Turks laughing at them. Did he have any problems communicating with Turkish people, for example? Is that perhaps part of the problem? Or is it just a kind of, you know, xenophobia, really? I think it might be both. It was quite unusual for a traveller from Morrison's class to know Turkish because his travels were not for long duration. He was visiting Levant Company merchant who stayed in Ottoman Empire, say in Aleppo or Istanbul for a longer period, they had to learn or at least employ translators, dragomen, to translate for them. You get a sense from that encounter that it's somehow a product of complete cultural misapprehension and mistranslation, that there's something off in that. And it's also, in a way, quite expected for an Englishman of this time to expect the worst from Turks. Even though English people were in alliance, Elizabeth I had made an effort to form trading relations with the Ottoman Sultan, and that's why English merchants were there trading in the first place. 
So even if there's a popular cultural stereotype of the terrible Turk threatening Europe and waging war on the ground, it was probably much more amicable and pragmatic, the relationship. I love modern day travel writing, but I think you've really hit on something by focusing on the sort of autobiographical nature of much of it, because quite a lot of the time, even today, people have more to say about themselves <laughs> than they do about the countries they're visiting. Is that fair of these reports from this period? Well, for a long time, early modern travel writing was approached more as a sort of ethnographic knowledge production process or Maybe because we, as scholars, had it easier to see it as an effort to educate and curiosity-driven ways in which we produce more knowledge about the world. But I found after doing research on these materials for a long time that they had interesting elements of the traveller himself or herself implicitly or explicitly hidden between the lines or fashioned on the pages. So I became more and more interested in the ways in which the traveller constructs their own identity by writing about their travels. And quite often, mobility was a reason to record your experience. So early modern travel writing in general is not a very closed book. It's more like a mode of expression and a very wide composite set of texts rather than a very fixed in this period. So people could record their travels in many, many different textual modes from the almanac and notebook like Morrison to a really highly sophisticated scholarly text like the itinerary. So between those poles, there are many spaces where you can both perform a certain identity if you want. So you, you can claim to be a dutiful servant to your crown or knowledgeable expert or anything to do with early modern travel. Or you can just tell a really fascinating story that will draw the readers in. It was really everything to the readers back then and really fascinating source material for a scholar today. Absolutely. So overall, you've talked about learning about this grief that Morrison has and the way that that is so amply described when quite often it's something that's hard to write about. What else would you say that we can learn from travel writing that we can't learn elsewhere? Well, for a student or scholar of emotion, I think travel writing is really interesting testimony because it gives a slightly different perspective to these emotions when the person is away from the normal support networks and elements they are in. Quite often social and cultural histories of emotion tend to be set in a specific context or national context or local context which is really enlightening but when the person moves between these types of locations and expressions and learns new things abroad, it becomes very dynamic, the field. And you can test previous assumptions and see how people navigate it in often very demanding and challenging terrain. What happens to death and grief if it happens abroad? Grief, love, longing, all these emotions that we still feel and are interested in provide an access to early modern lives and especially, maybe I'm starting to think as I grow older, that maybe my own experiences of being away from loved ones 
slightly detached or slightly suspended between different cultural worlds. I'm Finnish, but I live in Britain and I've been going back and forth these two countries. I don't claim that this makes me more capable of relating to early modern Levant company merchants longing for home, but I recognize some of that feeling. Some people say that empathy, fellow feeling as an early modern person would have called it, prevents you from understanding it and understanding historical phenomena. I think I'm slightly in the different camp. I think you need to be aware of those feelings and how they affect your own readings of historical material and sources. But they can also sometimes explain why a 40-year-old historian might all of a sudden become more and more interested in the memory and autobiographical memory of travel, of mobility and movement between countries. And I don't think we can escape that. I think as historians, we always bring our own experiences and our own subjectivities into our reading. So we should be aware of them, but there's no way we can operate without them. And I think what we choose to write about exposes who we are, really. So what you're saying actually is that travel writing operates to tell us things about ordinary life that people wouldn't have written down otherwise, that in their lives at home, there would be no reason to write down, you know, the great and striking grief they had on the death of a brother. But because Fines Morrison and others are out and about, they write it down. And so we get this amazing insight that we wouldn't otherwise have. Yes, When you think about your daily life, how it tends to get organised around all kinds of routines of movement, you don't necessarily even notice your surroundings anymore. But when you move to a different place, everything becomes more focused and more interesting and also therefore educational for others to read about, which is why Morrison then uses these experiences to allow other people to travel, maybe not in his footsteps, but from their armchairs, reading his book. And we too have been travelling from our armchairs, or wherever we are, to Jerusalem and on with him and experiencing life through his eyes because of what you shared with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Susanna, for having me. want to learn more, Hannah's article on Fines Morrison in Cultural and Social History, the Journal of the Social History Society, is freely available to access online. Just Google Fines, F-Y-N-E-S, Morrison's, M-O-R-Y-S-O-N, apostrophe S, grief. But only after you've subscribed to Not Just the Tudors. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm, HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. History is full of extraordinary people the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built 
a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.